Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Um, I was um, reminiscing about a Palm Sunday three years ago. Uh, we were a couple weeks into shutdown, and I uh, recorded a sermon in my basement <laughs> for Palm Sunday. I am glad that we can be together uh, this morning, and uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach. <clears throat> Today we're meditating on what is often referred to as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And I did think it was interesting that I was preaching on Palm Sunday three years ago, and most scholars think that it was three years that Jesus went about his ministry. And here, this moment is kind of, it's, it's one of his last big moments before he heads to the cross, and then, of course, ascends, uh, well, dies, raises from the dead, and ascends to heaven and sets the Holy Spirit to work amongst the church. The triumphal entry. Here, Jesus, after three years of ministry, he finally makes this final entrance into Jerusalem, a city that he had mostly avoided but was the most important city for his fellow Jews. Here, Jesus, who spent three years mostly in the small towns of Galilee, he makes a big entrance into this big city, which was even bigger at this time because there were people visiting from all over to celebrate Passover. I'm sorry, I'm trying to... Is it too close or too far? Okay, Daniel was worried it was too far. Now it seems just right. Are we good? Can you guys hear me? Okay, all right. Uh, some scholars think there were, you know, Jerusalem was maybe about, uh, I didn't put this in my notes, I'm trying to remember, maybe around 30,000 people most of the time, but Passover would have vastly increased. Over 100,000 people might have been present in Jerusalem at this time. Here Jesus on Palm Sunday, after three years of telling people to keep quiet, about his miracles and his healings. Here he now enters with followers shouting his praise, pointing at him, lauding him, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and Jesus does not silence them. Here Jesus, after three years of preaching about the kingdom of God, of telling stories to capture people's imagination about the kingdom of God. Here he now chooses to ride into town, the place the king would come, the place the king would show up, and he makes a clear statement by his actions that he is the king of this kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come near was one of Jesus' most frequent messages. And here he is showing, I, myself, Jesus, I'm the king and I've come near because I am the promised one. Here Jesus, after three years of liberating people from their afflictions, of lifting up the lowly, of driving out demons, he now begins his final journey to the anguish and the humiliation and the death of the cross. And as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem with this wild crowd drawing attention to him, the gospel writer Matthew tells us, love how each of them have their own different details. 
Matthew tells us in verse 10, the whole city was stirred. The whole city was in turmoil. The city was in an uproar. They were shaken up. There's echoes of Jesus' birth here. You remember back in Matthew chapter 2 when the Magi, some out-of-towners, had come and asked King Herod about this king of the Jews. Where could they find him? And Matthew tells us Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem with him. Once again, all of Jerusalem is shaken up because of Jesus and they are asking, who is this? Who is this? Now, I don't know about you, but to be honest, from my perspective, 2,000 years down the road, I find it hard to believe that all these people in Jerusalem sincerely didn't know who Jesus was. I mean, anyone else feel that way? I mean, throughout his ministry, there's crowds following Jesus, a large crowd here, a large crowd there. And even though he told people to be quiet, you know that word spread, right? But we have to consider that there were people visiting Jerusalem from all over the place. Jesus' ministry had been mostly in Galilee, which was 80, 100 miles away from Jerusalem. There were still plenty of folks, apparently, who still hadn't heard about this Jesus. Who is this? They were asking. I mean, I can kind of relate. I don't know if anyone ever like occasionally gets on Twitter. Is anyone else like me in that way? You get on Twitter and you're like, what are all these trending hashtags? Who are these people? I have no idea. I got some guys raising their hands. And I start to scroll my feed and I have to spend at least 10 minutes trying to figure out what everyone's arguing about. I can't even figure it out. And then like because I've made a half-hearted attempt to follow a variety of viewpoints, it's even more confusing because Different people are saying all kinds of different things. Let's just say I, with all due respect to those who value the conversation on Twitter, most days I'm just staying away. You see, back in the first century, you know they weren't tweeting about Jesus. (laughs) Those folks visiting Jerusalem couldn't hop on Google and be like, why is Jerusalem so crazy right now, (laughs) right? Or Jerusalem, chaos, Passover 29. No. No. No, to find out what was causing this turmoil, to find out why the city was stirred, they had to actually walk up to a human being and they had to ask, who is this? What is going on? And now if they asked the right human being, most likely one of those scruffy Galileans who had followed Jesus miles and miles along the way, If they asked one of those people, one of those crazy people in that crowd, that person would say, Matthew tells us, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So I want to invite you to just imagine being one of those strangers from Jerusalem, trying to understand who is this? As they take in this scene and they may begin to piece together some clues of who this is. He seems to be someone adored by outcasts. He goes by the name of Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Sounds good. But he's from Galilee, 
He probably has a funny accent. Most of those Galilee people are so country. Who is this? Asked the stranger from Jerusalem. And if they saw Jesus' approach to the city, if they saw him get on that donkey, then they would know even more about who this is. Now, again, nobody in the first century is Googling symbolism of donkey in Jerusalem or significance of cult for Jews, although you can go ahead and do that. These first century Jews knew their scriptures. They knew the promise of the prophet Zechariah, which Matthew retells. He quotes straight from Zechariah 9.9 for the readers of his gospel. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, and on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Who is this? Even if they hadn't yet heard the name Jesus, any Jew in Jerusalem at that time would know that his choice to ride a donkey sent a message. N.T. Wright, uh, the New Testament scholar, writes, Within Jesus' own time and culture, His riding on a donkey over the Mount of Olives, across Kidron, and up to the Temple Mount spoke more powerfully than words could have done of any, than any words could have done of a royal claim. Jesus was making a royal claim. He was the hoped-for leader coming in peace. He was the son of David, the promised Messiah. And it's interesting because Matthew actually cuts out Uh, part of what Zechariah writes, he is righteous and victorious. If you go look at Zechariah 9.9. But Matthew wanted to emphasize that he was humble and gentle, riding on a donkey. You see, a king, even a Jewish king, might ride into battle on a horse, but this king is different. Who is this? This king, this leader is gentle. This king, this Messiah is humble. And while he comes in peace, his presence in Jerusalem will continue to cause a stir. Who is this? The stranger in Jerusalem could piece together some evidence, track down a few more of those folks who had been following Jesus, interview members of that large crowd and learn that Over these past three years, they had seen that Jesus was a powerful healer. He gave sight to the blind. He wasn't afraid to touch lepers. In fact, he could heal them of their disease. He cast out a whole legion of demons. He could even bring someone back from the dead. This Jesus taught about God's law in a way that was incredibly faithful, and it was clear that he had authority, authority from God. And yet he simplified it down to love, love of God and love of others. This Jesus could calm a storm. He could walk on water. He could take a single meal and multiply it to feed thousands. This Jesus would save a life, even if it meant doing work on the Sabbath. He was concerned with hearts, with life. He said he wanted mercy, not sacrifice. He said we should forgive 77 times. This Jesus called himself a servant. He pointed at children and he said, be like them. 
He said the last would be first, and the first would be last. This Jesus, his heart was moved with compassion for those who were suffering and oppressed, those who were living on the margins, who were looking for a leader, looking for someone to give them hope. And he said, come to me if you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is gentle and humble in heart and yet boldly riding in on a donkey to this powerful city of Jerusalem to let it be known that the Messiah is here. Now, if this stranger follows Jesus around for a few more days while he's in Jerusalem, they'll learn even more about him. Everything I just said kind of comes from before Matthew 21. There's a whole lot that happens even between the triumphal entry and Jesus' passion on the cross. He's got a lot more interesting stories he tells. He gets really harsh with those Pharisees, too. Which I wonder, maybe this stranger in Jerusalem who's asking, who is this about Jesus, maybe they come across a Pharisee. What kind of picture might they get about Jesus from that person? They happen to come across a a Pharisee, one of those uh, Jewish leaders who was so passionate about being faithful to God, but had kind of lost sight of the forest for the trees. That Pharisee might say, oh, this Jesus, he has no regard for God's laws or the traditions of the elders. His disciples don't fast. They don't wash up before eating. He even works on the Sabbath. This Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. This Jesus, some of his most devoted followers are dirty, unclean fishermen. This Jesus claims to be God, but he's a blasphemer, the Pharisee would say. He drives out demons, but it's by the prince of demons that he does that. This Jesus is a threat, and we are plotting put an end to him. That was going on in the background here too. It's interesting that Matthew doesn't actually include the Pharisees in his triumphal entry scene. You might recall that when Luke tells this story, there's Pharisees who come to Jesus and ask him to rebuke his crowd, rebuke his disciples. And do you guys remember what Jesus said? He said, if I tell them to be quiet, even the Stones will cry out. Even the stones will cry out. Can't you see what God is doing here? I have this little book on my shelf. It's called Jesus with Dirty Feet. Has anyone read this little book? It'll take you like an hour. So if you want to feel like you read a book, just I'll loan it to you. I can't remember why I picked this up, but I I was rereading it this week. Um, The subtitle is A Down-to-Earth Look at Christianity for the Curious and Skeptical. Um, And most of it's written in kind of poetry form. Um, It doesn't rhyme, but uh, it's just kind of a fresh perspective on this Jesus. And Don Everts, the author, writes, You see, Jesus' popularity rarely extended to those in charge. 
the religious leaders, the politicians, the keepers of the status quo, they were all threatened by him. His walking, his teaching, his healing, the tide of changing lives that he was creating. So they drew up a tidy plan and tried to kill him. And that's when things got really interesting. You see, Jesus let them. Jesus let them kill him. And then he didn't stay dead. Shocking indeed. It silenced everyone. And one thought was left on the lips and in the heart of everyone for thousands of miles and hundreds of years. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And so here we are in April 2023, and maybe we know a little bit more about Jesus than those who are up to Matthew chapter 21. We've got a whole New Testament now. Lots to read here. We've got stories that have been passed on by Christians over hundreds of years. Maybe we've read a few books. Read it in an hour. (laughs) We've heard a few sermons. Heard a lot of sermons. We've got songs about Jesus, TV shows about Jesus, Some good, some, eh. What does it all mean? Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is he to you today? And I don't mean who have you made him to be, although it could be a good question to consider, right? We all have a tendency to shape Jesus in our own image, to, to put him in a box that we're comfortable with, See, the Pharisees, they didn't even try that. They were like, oh, we're not going to try to shape this guy. We're not going to try to mold this leader. We're just going to kill him. (laughs) Because they could see that he had the authority and power of God. And that meant that they didn't have the authority and control that they thought they would have anymore. So who is this Jesus really? When you come at him with a a sincere heart, an open mind, with the help of the Holy Spirit, who is this Jesus? When you reread the account of the Passion this week, which I hope you will, who do you meet in the pages of Scripture? When you quiet yourself down and just enough to actually pray, to not just talk to Jesus, but to listen, to commune with him. When you turn your full attention to the love of this gentle yet powerful Savior, who is this? Who is this? You see, a lot of us have been satisfied with a faith that's more about getting certain propositions or or statements correct. Uh, We think that Christianity is somehow a a system of ethics or a a way that we manage our personal sin or, or shortcomings. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is is the power of God to set people free. It's the power of God to set people free. It's more than just saying the right thing or praying the right prayer. It's a person who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so we want to follow his way, whoever this is. And as we follow him, we'll learn, right? Don't put him in a box. 
Let Jesus be who he is. Meet him in the pages of Scripture. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you the truth about Jesus, about his love for you, about his gentleness and his humility. And you know what that means? That means that he's not controlling. That means that he's not going to force you to do anything. It also means that you might have to die a little bit to really follow him. He's the way, and we're following him. He's going all the way to the cross, but it doesn't end there. I like this quote from Lisa Sharon Harper, who writes in her book, The Very Good Gospel. She says, she talks about some of these virtues that Jesus calls us to, that they involve a small death. She says, humility is a small death. It's the death of supremacy. Trust is a small death. It's the death of control. And these are my words, not hers. Control is an illusion. Am I right? But we sure try to grasp it. She writes, truth is a small death, the death of lack of accountability. Reparation is a small death, the death of domination. Reciprocity is a small death, the death of autonomy. But think about the alternative. Choosing supremacy, control, lack of accountability, domination, autonomy, self-absorption. This path feels familiar. The path of this world. Do not be fooled. It leads to the big death. The big death is separation from God. The path of the cross and the small deaths of repentance, humility, truth, reparation, trust, reciprocity, and embracing the other lead to life and resurrection. And in the light of the resurrection, the big death has no sting. Separation does not win. So the way of Jesus, though there's moments of triumph, right, not very glitzy. It's not very attractive sometimes. In fact, like I said, if you spend some time reading the Passion account this week, it's downright embarrassing, humiliating. That is what passion means. Jesus let, let these things happen so that he could show the world his power at the resurrection, and he invites us on his way. Who is this Jesus? Is he someone who controls, someone who's proud? No. He surrenders. He is humble. He lives with open hands, and he invites us to do the same. So, friends, I want to give you a moment to talk to Jesus today, okay? I know our our lives are full and busy and Sometimes we, we come to church and we think maybe we'll have a moment to connect with God, but it all goes by so fast. You still got your palms? All right. I want you to think about those, uh, that crowd on that first Palm Sunday, that crowd right outside Jerusalem. They had been following Jesus. Some maybe just for a few days, they just figured out who he is. Some of them had been following him for years, for miles. And they came and they laid down their palms. They laid down their coats. And I would like to think, as they walked with their feet and they took their whole bodies to that moment, they were laying down something of themselves. 
for Jesus as well. That's always the invitation that Jesus has. His invitation to repent is about turning, turning again to Jesus. So friends, I want to invite you to turn to Jesus anew and afresh today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and they're going to start playing a song. I want to give you a moment to pray, to talk to Jesus, to ask him who he is. Who is he really? What has gotten in the way of your understanding of him, of his love, his humility, his passion for those on the margins, his passion to set people free, not just you, but your neighbor. (laughs) Not just us right here in Naperville, but people all across this broken, weary world. So I want to invite you to bring your palms forward. Bring your whole selves. And you decide what that prayer is for you. What are you laying down today? Are you weary? Are you burdened? Come lay it down. Jesus loves you. Are you tired of trying to do things right? Of working so hard to somehow earn God's love? Come lay it down. You don't earn God's love. You receive it. You don't need to keep trying. Are you frustrated? Are you confused? Are you afraid of of losing something that you don't want to let go of? Maybe today is the day to lay it down. Lay it down. It's always been in God's hands, not yours. (laughs) Control is an illusion. Jesus calls us to receive, to follow, to turn to him. I hope as you come forward, you say yes to Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10th time, maybe for the 500th time, repentance is an ongoing thing. We keep on turning to Jesus. But friends, I want to invite you now to come lay down whatever you are carrying today and let Jesus wash over you with his love.